All right. Super, super. Uh, yes, that's right. I'm being pointed. So youth, you guys get out in Jesus' name. We love you outside. No, we love you wherever you are. And elementary kids, you guys are dismissed. Youth group, you're going to go have some socially distant fun out there. I'm going to take this crazy thing off. It's good to see you guys and all of you guys who are at home and aren't yet uh, coming back out to join us. We're awfully glad to have you uh, as well. We are cruising through the book of Acts. And this morning we're going to be in the first big chunk of Acts chapter 22. So you can turn to Acts chapter 22 now. I think that Susie more than hit all of the announcements, so you don't have to rehear them uh, from me. So Acts chapter 22, open it up or turn it on or do whatever it is that you do. And we remember when we last left the Apostle Paul, uh, we left him in a kind of a precarious position. You remember he was chained between those two Roman soldiers. He had this angry Jewish mob that was angry at him specifically. They were trying to kill him up there on the Temple Mount. Uh, and as precarious as it was, it wasn't at all surprising, was it? Because it had been predicted over and over again all along the way as he went there to Jerusalem. And of course, we know that this was his very first step in what would be his coming journey to Rome, that all-expense-paid trip to Rome that he would have as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. So none of this surprises us. We've kind of been building towards this for weeks, I know. And what will, however, I think surprise us this morning is what we will see that Paul does as we kind of pick up the action in our text today. Uh, this morning we're going to see Paul's surprisingly simple strategy for sharing Jesus. That's the title of the message. Unfortunately, the strategy is way simpler than that cumbersome title was. But um, this is a remarkable passage. It's a passage that really kind of preaches itself because we're going to hear Paul preach to this Jewish mob as he really tries to win them to Jesus. And I think that the passage is a great reminder for us of something that should be a really critical part of our own ministry, our own kind of evangelistic approach as we seek to do uh, the very same thing. So let's pray and just really ask the Lord to speak to us and to bless uh, his word this morning. So, Father, we are thankful, Lord, just to be here, uh, to be together, Lord. We're thankful for those who are joining us virtually this morning, Lord. Uh, we don't care how we're together, Lord. We're just glad to be here. We're glad most of all, Lord, that you're here in our midst, that you're present here today, Lord, and we are anxious to have you speak to us, Lord, through your word. And so we pray you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, corporately, Lord, as well as uh, personally and individually. And so we thank you, Lord, and we look forward expectantly to what it is you want to do here this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we remember the story from last week, Paul there in Jerusalem. It was during that very busy time of the Feast of Pentecost. And we saw how he was really trying to kind of build these bridges with the Jews 
there in Jerusalem who had heard all of these false rumors about Paul's teachings, right? Misunderstanding his message, misunderstanding what his ministry really was. They thought that he was teaching the Jews out there in all of those Gentile regions that they should forsake Moses, that they should forsake the law of Moses, that they should walk away from the traditions and the customs of the Jewish faith, which of course was not true at all. That's not what Paul taught at all. And so to demonstrate the love he had for these Jewish Christians, remember he agreed to support, kind of to sponsor these four men who had taken this voluntary vow. It was that Nazarite vow, a vow of consecration and a vow of dedication. We saw that Paul even agreed to participate with them in their purification, right? Those ceremonial washings there at the temple. And everything was going really well for about a week until, remember in our text last week, that Paul was recognized in the temple by these Jews who had come to Jerusalem from Ephesus. They had come there for the Pentecost feast. And you remember that these guys stirred up that angry mob. They laid hands on Paul and not in the Pentecostal sense, but they laid hands on him and they began to beat him to death with their hands. Remember the Romans rushed down from that adjacent Antonia fortress. They arrested him. They tried to take him back into the barracks where they could safely question him since surprisingly we saw that this mob, remember they didn't even know exactly why it was they were trying to kill Paul. But then there's Paul steps from safety standing there kind of on the steps to that fortress. Paul made this really surprising request. And at the end of verse 39, he said, I implore you, speaking to the commander, he says, permit me to speak to the people. Paul was so passionate for his people that what he saw there was an opportunity to preach the gospel. We see this angry, murderous mob. He saw an audience who was desperately in need of the gospel of Jesus and the grace of God. We see what would be a sure end to his life. Paul saw the chance he'd been waiting for all of his life, or at least for the last 25 years of his life. And then we left off in verse 40. It says, when he had given him permission, that Paul stood on the stairs and he motioned with his hand to the people And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, right, saying, what did he say? Well, turn the page, right, scroll down, swipe across, click through, whatever you need to do. And in verse 1 of chapter 23, we start to see this powerful defense that Paul's going to offer. He says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now so here we have this accused jewish man speaking to this mob of angry jewish men and referring offering them this defense right of these charges that they were leveling against him now remember specifically verse 28 they had accused him of teaching men everywhere against the people the law 
and this place, and furthermore, that he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Remember, they assumed erroneously that Paul had brought one of his sort of Gentile traveling team into the temple with him, which, of course, we saw he hadn't. And so Paul was now going to give this defense of what they said that he had done. Now, the Greek word, interestingly, that's translated defense, it's apologia, and it's where we get our word, what? Apologetics. Now, theologically, apologetics means defending the faith, right? We're giving reason, we're giving rationale for the things that we believe. And certainly, this would have piqued their interest, right? But it wasn't just what he said, but notice it was how he said it that I think really grabbed their attention. Look what it says in verse 2. It says that when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Remember we saw that Paul spoke to the commander in this perfect Greek, but here he addresses his countrymen in the Hebrew language, which actually at that time would have been Aramaic. No one actually spoke Hebrew at that point. The Jews certainly would have understood Greek, and yet Paul would use their sort of more native mother tongue to speak directly to their hearts. And what we see immediately is that the crowd was quieted, right? All of their shouts subsided, at least for the moment, because as we know, right, angry, murderous mobs are always ready to listen to reason, aren't they? Okay, maybe not. But what I think it tells us is that the silence in and of itself, I am convinced, was nothing short of a miracle. I believe this was a work of the Holy Spirit as the Lord was the one that calmed down this angry crowd. He quieted their hearts so that they could hear what Paul was about to say. And at this point, just think about it. We have to imagine you could probably cut the tension there on the Temple Mount with a knife. They were hanging on his every word. And so if we were going to kind of pause the movie that's running in our minds as we picture this whole thing kind of unfolding in front of us, and if we were going to guess what the next words out of Paul's mouth might be as he makes this defense. If we didn't know what they were, right, assuming we hadn't ever read this before, here's Paul, right? He finally has everyone's full attention. He's speaking to this devout religious crowd. He's speaking in this extremely religious environment on this day during the Feast of Pentecost. This was this opportunity he'd been waiting for and he had been looking forward to for the last 25 years since he was converted into Christianity. That he would one day be able to stand in front of a crowd just like this and just deliver one single sermon. And so here it is, right? His dream is being fulfilled, this opportunity to speak to them concerning his faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now, if I hadn't already read the rest of the story, I would have bet everything I owned 
which of course isn't much, but I would have bet all of it on exactly what I knew Paul would say. That first of all, of course, he was going to answer these specific allegations that had been falsely you know, made against him. He would clear up doctrinally what his position was on the Mosaic Law. And then, of course, he would have launched from there and used this as the perfect opportunity to present an absolutely airtight case, right, theologically and prophetically for the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Jewish Messiah from all of the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. And of course, we know that this is what he would do because this is precisely what he's, we've seen that he has done in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue as he shared Jesus with the Jews in all of those Gentile cities. No doubt Paul's going to quote from Genesis chapter 1 and then into Genesis chapter 3, Daniel chapter 9, and Isaiah chapter 53. Certainly he'd bring up Psalm 52 and all of these other wonderful messianic pictures in the Old Testament. And so settle in for what will surely be a scriptural masterpiece from a theological perspective. He says, brethren and fathers... Look at the end of verse 2. It says they kept more silent. And then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Now, wait a minute, right? And, and then make a note of Paul's approach here, because rather than share with him any of those things that we were so convinced that he would share with them, this intellectual, theological giant of a man, no doubt the greatest mind in all of Christianity, proceeds to give them his Christian testimony. He's about to tell them his salvation story, this account of how it was that he became a Christian. And so Paul's powerful defense is Paul's personal testimony. And you see, the Apostle Paul, as he stands here before this crowd, he knows something that they don't yet know. And that is that his life now is nothing less than an absolute miracle of the Holy Spirit. And that it's his spiritual rebirth that is the only possible and plausible explanation for the man that they saw standing in front of them. And so he wanted to tell them the story behind what had so radically changed his life. And you know, the truth is that perhaps after only the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ and the word of God itself and the witness of the Holy Spirit himself, the greatest evidence to the power and the reality of Christianity in the world today is the untold millions of changed lives that the gospel has produced 
over the past 2,000 years. Changed lives from every corner of the world. Changed lives all across this incredible diversity of mankind as represented in the world. And the power to save men and women out of every conceivable addiction and sin and situation and circumstance, all of those things that exist in a fallen world. That's what the gospel does. And a testimony is a very powerful thing, and Paul knew it. And I think sometimes that maybe our surprise at Paul's approach in using his testimony here in this setting, it just kind of speaks to the fact that I think sometimes, at least to some degree, we have lost sight of the power of our testimony ourselves. The power of that story of how we personally came to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and then how it was that we became born again. And a testimony is made up of three very simple things that we see in exactly what Paul's going to share here. It's simply who we were before Jesus, it's how we first met Jesus, and then it's who we are now in Jesus. Look again at how Paul starts off here in verse 3 again, pointing out who he was before Jesus. A Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, zealous toward God, just as you are today. Paul says, look, guys, I am just exactly like you. So he starts off by declaring to this angry mob, I also used to be a person who had outright rejected Jesus Christ without really even knowing anything about him, without ever going to those prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament to discover whether he matched that description or not. Paul said, I did that just as you have failed to do that because I was raised just like you were raised. When Paul declared himself to be a Jew born in the city of Tarsus, but brought up, right, raised right there in the city of Jerusalem, he points that out because it's important. What he's saying is that he's not some sort of Hellenistic Greek Jew who was raised in some kind of Gentile area somewhere, and here he is getting himself into trouble in the big city of Jerusalem just because he doesn't know how things are done. Paul says, I know what I'm doing here. I was raised here. You know, I received my religious training, he points out, from none other than the highest and most esteemed religious rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. And you can bet that when Paul mentions Gamaliel's name, he immediately had the attention of every man in that crowd. Because they would have automatically understood what he said next, that he'd been taught according to the strictness of our father's law. Under Gamaliel, Paul would have been taught the law strictly. Paul's saying, look, I'm not the the product of some kind of liberal theology. I'm zealous for the law. I'm zealous toward the Lord, 
just like you guys are as well. So zealous, in fact, that Paul's going to go on to tell them next how he had previously zealously persecuted the very faith that he's a part of now. He says in verse 4 that I persecuted this way, or the, the Christian faith, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now we remember all this back in Acts chapter 8. Remember how Paul's persecution of the church there in Jerusalem caused the church to flee out to the surrounding regions. Then in chapter 9, we saw that Paul, then Saul, was madly following after these people, even as far up into Syria, to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be punished. And as he points out here, we remember he had the full backing of the entire Jewish religious establishment as he did it. And again, we can only imagine that as he's saying this, he's looking out on the crowd as he's recounting this part of his story. And you can be, get, bet that he's making eye contact with all of the people that he knows would know that everything he's saying is absolutely true. He's saying, hey, the high priest over there, he'll tell you that this is true. All of the many members of the Sanhedrin who were present then and are still here now, they will also tell you that this is all true. And so again, Paul says simply, there was a time when I was exactly like you. And you'd better believe that at this point, they were all tracking right with him. They knew exactly what he was saying. But I believe there was this big question at this point that this created in their minds. And it's the very same question that fills the minds of those people who are still living in the lives that we once lived when we tell our testimony to them. You know, it's when we come out of something, you know, in, in terms of our life, and then we're able to say that, you know, this was my background. This was my worldview. This is the way that I saw things. And if we're talking to someone or even a crowd of people, and those people are still mired in that same background, they're still deeply entrenched in that same philosophy and caught up in that same worldview, but then we tell them, this is why I came out of it, and this is how I came out of it, and this is what was so lacking in my experience that drove me out of it, you can bet that everyone who is listening to you at that point and who's paying attention, what they recognize is that there is also the very same something that is lacking in their lives at that moment. 
because they can sense that something is lacking in that same situation that they are still stuck in or that they find themselves almost content in and yet they're looking at you and you found a reason to leave it and you found a way to get out of it and deep down, believe me, they know that they are yearning for the very same thing but they just don't know how to get there. And you can bet that everyone there in that crowd, as they listened at this point to Paul, they understood in a very intimate and a personal way what Paul was saying. And so watch the way Paul now answers this question that he knows is in their minds. Because now he's going to tell them about the circumstances that were surrounding his coming to trust in Jesus as his Savior. Look at verse 6. He says, Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. So again, we have that first part of our personal testimony. It's who we were before we met Jesus. And then the second part is how we met the Lord Jesus. And most simply, it's just the story of how it was that the gospel first pierced our hearts. How it was that that light of the Lord Jesus pierced the darkness that was our lives. And here we see that for Paul, it was as he was on the road to Damascus. That very same trip, he was on his way to arrest Christians. And of course, it was he instead who was arrested by Jesus. Now we looked in detail at this same story when it actually happened back in Acts chapter 9. So you'll be glad to know we're not going to dive into the details yet again this morning. But here as he shares his heart with this crowd of these Jewish brothers, it's like he's saying, I was just like you all until I had this encounter with Jesus. Jesus met me and my life was dramatically changed, right? He knocked me right off of my high donkey, so to speak. Verse 7, it says, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. And so I said, What shall I do, Lord? And he said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, where you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And so here, as Paul shares this second part of his personal testimony, everything about it is essentially centered upon this personal contact with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And for all of these Jews who had been listening, this would have been evidence to them that Jesus was not as all of them believed that he was. It's not as Paul had previously believed. Jesus was not dead in the grave. His body hadn't been stolen away. 
And Paul's declaring clearly that he was saved and that he was changed by this personal encounter with Jesus himself, who was very much still very alive. And again, our testimony tells the way that Jesus at that moment in time reached in and made himself alive to us and how he humbled us, how we changed our minds in that moment about who he is. That moment we realized that everything we had thought about him was simply wrong and that we were simply wrong. I would venture to guess this is the one time in our lives for many of us when we were so thankful to have been shown how wrong we were, right? We don't like it when anybody else does it, but oh, how thankful we are that Jesus did it. Amen? And notice for Paul, Paul's interesting. Paul had been so very wrong in doing all of the right things. See, a lot of us were saved out of a background that would probably make a hell's angel blush, right? But Paul was saved right out of this self-righteous religion. Paul was saved out of a deeply religious background, but it was a religious background that was badly both in error and badly, badly misguided. And the fact of the matter is today that the overwhelming majority of the world that we live in are not atheist. They're not even strictly secularist. Nearly 84% of the world's population identifies itself with some sort of a religious group. And according to a study that was done just in 2017 by the Pew Research Group, while 31% of the world's population does identify as Christian, what that means is that at least over 50% of those who claim that they are religious are not Christian. So the majority of the people who will come to put their faith in Jesus for salvation from all around the world today, they're going to do it just like Paul did it here, not from a purely secular background, but from a religious background. They're going to come out of a religious heritage when they finally realize that religion in and of itself cannot save them. And the sad truth is that so much of religion today as it is in the world is completely wrong. They can't all be true. They are incompatible. Not all the religions of the world can be true in what they teach and the problem is that they are wrong about the most important thing in life, and that is how to be forgiven of our sins, how to begin a personal relationship with our Creator God. Remember, it was to a deeply religious man by the name of Nicodemus it was to this deeply religious man that Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you that unless one is, what? Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
So the issue concerning salvation is not whether I'm religious or not. It's not even actually whether I believe in God or not. But the question is, have I been born again? Have I recognized my need for salvation as a sinner who's separated from God? Have I recognized God's provision of Jesus as the only provision for my sin? And then have I put my trust in Jesus and received that miracle of the Holy Spirit coming into my life. That's what happened to Paul here in his personal encounter with Jesus. That's when the man who he once was ceased to be that man who he was, that was now standing in front of them. As a result of this experience with Jesus on that road, the man who started out the journey to Damascus Paul says, you know, that man who left Jerusalem so many years ago that you used to know, that same man who ultimately walked blindly into Damascus, that those were two entirely different men. Amen is right. That the man who left Jerusalem no longer existed. It was a completely different person who walked into Damascus. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so Paul declares to these Jews that he is essentially a living miracle of the Holy Spirit standing in front of them in just the same way that so many of us here in this room are who are here and, and watching this morning. And Paul continues now with his salvation story. Here he is waiting in the, in the darkness of his blindness in Damascus. It says in verse 12, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So he shared who he was before he met Jesus. He shared what happened as he first met Jesus. And now he shares how the Lord worked in his life to transform him into this man he was today in Jesus. Starting with this ministry of another devout Jew who had also become a Christian, Ananias, who shared with Paul about this wonderful plan that the Lord now had for Paul's life. Again, look at the end of verse 14 into 15, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Underline those verses because what a wonderful summary they are of the calling of every one of us, first and foremost, as born-again believers. And that's to simply share with others the way that we have 
personally seen the Lord Jesus at work in our lives and what we've heard him speak into our lives. That's it, right? That is all that we are called to do. We're called to be his witnesses and to give testimony to his power as we have personally experienced it. You know, there, there is a sense in which every Christian testimony is the same testimony, right? Every testimony is made up of those same three things, who we were, how we met Jesus, and what he's done in our lives. But there's another sense in which no two testimonies are ever the same. They are as unique and they are as individual as our fingerprints are. We know there's some people who come to God out of these mountaintop experiences. Others come to God and come to trust in Jesus Christ in the deepest valleys of life. And then there's, of course, people who come in circumstances anywhere in between those two extremes. Some come in their youth. Others come when we're down the road a bit more with some more extra bruises and bumps, right? But then there are these unique ways that Jesus meets each one of us and the ways that he arrested us and confronted us with all of those misconceptions that we had personally about who he was. He confronts us with the things that we owe to him. And then there are those ways that he works in our hearts to transform us. As Paul would write in Romans 12, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Right? Little by little, day by day, as he would write to the Corinthians, as we're being transformed into his image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. All along the way, right, breaking those bonds of sin, as it would say in Joel, that God can restore to us those years that the swarming locust has eaten. And no two stories of redemption and restoration are exactly the same, and yet every one of them in this room this morning is equally a miracle and uniquely our own, and it's ours to share powerfully as our personal testimony. And I, I think, too, as we finish up here with Paul's unique testimony, what we're going to see is that his calling within that testimony just as it is for us, was unique as well. Because Paul now is going to fast forward about two or three years after his initial conversion, and we're going to see that Jesus is going to meet him once again, but this time, not on a Damascus road, but right here in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to give Paul some very specific direction for the future direction of his Christian witness. It says in verse 17... Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Jesus said, I, I have much ministry for you to do, Paul, but it's not here it's not in this particular city, and it's not among these particular people, right? Jesus told Paul 
to get out of Jerusalem 20 years earlier because he knew that the Jews would not believe this radical testimony of Paul's. So I said, verse 19, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and I beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So here's Paul saying, but, but, but no, Lord, right? He says, it's because of my radical testimony that I'm sure they will believe. So this is Paul's gentle way, his first little argument that he had with Jesus, right? Just sort of letting Jesus in on the things that maybe he didn't realize. The idea is, Lord, I know they'll listen to me. You know, they know how I used to persecute Christians, so my story is going to be especially powerful and so persuasive to them. Paul sincerely believed that the Jews would be so impressed by this radical change in his life, and nevertheless, Jesus gave him this direction to go in a completely different direction, even telling him to make haste and do it. Do this, Paul, and do it now. Because Jesus had a very different calling, a unique ministry for the Apostle Paul to take the gospel out to the Gentiles. And now for the past 20 plus years, we've read it, right? Paul has just been faithful to do exactly that. Despite his desire to stay there in Jerusalem so many years before. And so Paul's declaring to them, and he's telling us as well, what his life had become after his conversion, and that he now was completely giving his life fully to the call of God upon his life, even though it wasn't at all what Paul envisioned for his life. He says, hey, you want to know what my life has been since I came to Christ? My life is currently spent on obeying his word to me and his direction, right? Whatever his plan is for my life, that's the most important thing for me now. And the life that I'm now living, the life that you're now seeing is just the byproduct of this wonderful, radical, spiritual rebirth that has happened in me. It's changed my priorities. I'm not trying to be great in any sort of a religious environment, but my sole desire is whatever God's plan is for my life, and I want to do that. And all of us as Christians this morning can say exactly that same thing. Right? It's no longer about our plans or about our direction, but it's God, what do you want for my life? So Paul's telling them, like, since this day of my conversion, this is exactly how I've been spending my life, even if it had taken him in a completely different direction than to minister to his people, the Jews, but instead to go off to the Gentiles, verse 22, and they listened to him until this word 
And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. As they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. Whoops! Right? What was it, something I said? You know? And just when everything seemed to be going so well for Paul, right? We went from this powerful defense to his personal testimony and now right into this mob's irrational response. One author pointed out it's a good thing there were no rocks up there on the Temple Mount because if there had been, Paul would have most likely been stoned on the spot. But I think we see that they were totally tracking with him right up until this point. Notice Luke very specifically tells us they listened to him, what? Until this word. This angry, unreasonable mob, these very same men who had just tried to beat Paul to death with their bare hands, then they listened carefully to this entire sermon. They engaged intently with his personal testimony, and now suddenly they erupt into this blind rage over the saying of one word, Gentiles. Notice in their minds, they hadn't really lost their minds when Paul talked about who he was before he met Jesus. And they hadn't lost their minds even when Paul shared how he had met Jesus. They didn't lose their minds when Paul talked about Jesus as the just one. Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Even Jesus as Lord. They hadn't lost their minds when he talked about Jesus being alive and appearing to him in the temple. In their minds, they didn't lose their minds when Paul talked about Jesus, but they could not stand the idea that God would extend his grace and save Jews and save Gentiles in the very same way. That's what they couldn't stand. Because the message of Jesus, and the message of Paul, and the message of the entire New Testament is that you can come to God just as you are, whether Jew, Gentile, foreigner, high, low, rich, poor. However you are, you come, but you have to come to God through Jesus Christ. And it was Billy Graham who said it, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's what they couldn't stand. So collectively, right, theologically, the response of these Jews is important because it's simply one more confirmation that the Jews of Jerusalem had irrevocably refused the gospel of Jesus and that they had sealed their fate once again nationally and we know it would be less than 20 years from this point where in AD 70 when the city of Jerusalem would become rubble and ruin now there are some critics that claim that Paul was wrong to use his testimony here and they cite the response of the Jews here to say that the Paul's sermon wasn't at all successful but again 
I believed that they missed the point entirely. So, so this mob, indeed, they rejected Paul collectively, just as we know was promised prophetically. But a Christian testimony has the power to touch people's hearts personally and individually. And what we see is that the Holy Spirit has included in the New Testament record Paul sharing his salvation story on at least four different occasions with four different intentions. Here he tells the story to persuade the Jews. In Acts 26, we're going to see him tell the story again to persuade the Gentiles. Philippians chapter 3, he tells his story for a theological understanding. And to Timothy, he writes about his story to give Timothy some much-needed encouragement. And Paul uses his testimony in this way because Paul knew that there was power in his personal story of his personal encounter with Jesus and the new man that he was because of Jesus. And as we close this morning, I think so often when people see us as Christians, they kind of see us like the delivered demoniac from Gadara. Remember in, at Regroup just a couple weeks back, Pastor Jeff taught on that chapter. People look at us and they see us like they saw that man. It says they came to Jesus and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. They saw him sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And here we are. And sometimes people can look at our lives and we're seated and we're clothed and we're in our right minds. And they assume that it's always been that way with us. But what they don't realize at all is that what they're looking at today is what God has made us into. They have no idea what we once were or who we once were or how we once thought or what we once believed or the things that we once did. They have no idea that we've not always been this person at all. And the problem is that they can easily come to think that we've never tasted difficulty in our lives or that we've never ever tasted all those things that life has to offer or that somehow we became Christians because we were simply ignorant of all of the wonderful sin that was available out there to us in the world or all those experiences that a person could have living the way they wanted to live. And what people don't realize, and maybe even what we forget, is that most of us became Christians precisely because we had a very long and a deep and a rich experience with all of those things that the world and the flesh and the devil could provide. And it was out of that experience, out of our experience with the unholy trinity, that's what caused us to become Christians ultimately. And it's our testimony that tells that story in a powerful way.
And that can give hope to those very same people who are still stuck in that mire of their own sin. And very quickly, you don't need 30 minutes or, or 15 minutes or even five minutes to give your testimony. You can do it in just a couple of sentences in the midst of a normal conversation. You could even do it around an outdoor California socially distanced three household Thanksgiving dinner on paper plates wearing a mask in between bites. You could still give your testimony. Because isn't it right about now when people are sharing more than more and more that they just can't figure out what is going on in the world today? And so you turn and you say to them, you know what, I know how you feel. I used to be just like that, living so anxiously and living in fear of the future. But then Jesus met me in the midst of that fear and he changed my life. And he gave me hope. And he changed my entire perspective. And they say, really? I wish I had that. And you say, well, you can. Let me tell you more. You see, that's our testimony. That is Paul's surprisingly simple strategy for sharing Jesus. And we can do it anytime, anywhere. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for just the unique testimony that each one of us share, Lord. We thank you for the miracle that we are, Lord, just that that spiritual rebirth, Lord, the work of your spirit in each of our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would give us opportunity to share that hope that lies within us, Lord, to share the experience that we have with you and to share that with people, Lord, that so desperately need that good news and that hope in their lives. Give us opportunities, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.